It is great to have you guys here this morning. Uh, let me advise you guys, if y'all have not gotten into the show Lost, don't. Uh, you'll lose hours of your life. If you have gotten into the show, you know exactly why I just previewed that clip this morning. If we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and man's free will, that is the great question of the TV show Lost amongst a thousand other questions I don't think I'll ever get answered. I hope I will this season. We'll see. But I hope that you guys have been enjoying the show. The great question as the show goes through is, is are the different characters in the show making their own decisions or has it all been determined elsewhere or by somebody else? And if so, is it the island? Is it, is it uh, Richard? Is it, uh, what's the guy? Um, I'm blanking all of a sudden. Jacob. Great. Thank you, guys. Uh, who has made all these decisions and are they determining everything that's occurring on the island? That's a great question. Uh, one of the sh- uh, quotes in the show in the previous season talks about that the universe, in a sense, course corrects. That no matter the decisions you make, the universe will course correct those so that it always ends up leading to the same set of circumstances and the same bottom line events that will occur either on the island or in life. And so whether it's lost or it's life, the great question that we're going to wrestle with this morning, a question that hits us every day in our life is this. How do you wrestle with the fact that God is sovereign and that you have a will? How do those two fit together? Has God predetermined everything or am I in some real sense free to determine destiny for myself and to determine my own decisions. How do those two truths fit together? That's where we're going to go this morning. Um, if you were anything like me, this is a debate and a conversation that I poured out hours on in dorm rooms and in coffee shops in college. Uh, it is a debate that theologians have been having for two millennia. We are going to take 35 minutes, all right? So more than likely, this thing will not be unpacked, packaged back up, put a bow on it, resolved nice and neat for you this morning. But I hope to get you guys started on that quest and kind of started to think through, how do you wrestle with this? And what are some boundaries by which you begin to wrestle with it in a way that's appropriate and biblical? And ultimately, here's kind of what I want to do for you guys. If we do this correctly this morning, a couple things will happen. One, I may very well likely disagree with some of the people that you love most to listen to on podcast, and that's okay. Um, I will not disagree with your mother, though, all right? Uh, the second thing that I will more than likely do if we do this right is uh, as we look at God's sovereignty and we look at man's free will, if we do this right, as I hope to do it this morning, but where, you, where you guys will end up is in a place a lot like this little Chinese finger toy, the deal that's on your chair. Uh, if we affirm and we look at the biblical testimony of God's sovereignty and we also see the biblical testimony concerning man's responsibility or man's will, where I hope to end up with you guys is that you guys are in a place logically by the end of the morning that you are stuck and more frustrated than you were before you came. That's our morning, all right? And in a sense, what I want to do for you guys this morning is that if you will affirm God's sovereignty and you put one finger in this toy, and you will affirm man's free will and you put another finger in the toy, that you will land in a place that you get stuck. Um, and hopefully I don't get stuck if I can get myself out. All right, um, that's kind of what I want to do for you guys this morning, that hopefully as you guys affirm both of those, it's going to be a lot like this Chinese finger toy deal that you'll get yourselves logically in a place that you're stuck. I want to submit to you guys this morning as well that for a lot of those that have dealt with this debate and that for those that have wrestled with it, for those that have come up with theologies that are built around it, many people will deal with this debate and they will land in a place that they don't get stuck mentally. They land in a place that essentially will affirm one over the other in such a way that one of these issues swallows the other. A lot of theologies out there will either affirm God's sovereignty to such an extent that man becomes held hostage and man's will is just in a sense absorbed within God's sovereignty. Some will argue uh, in the complete opposite way in a sense that man's free will is, it, is what determines God's will. And so in some senses, man begins to hold God hostage. And what I want to do for you guys this morning is kind of walk through those. Some of those things you're going to see, you'll, you'll be familiar from things you've heard. And what I want to do for you guys this morning is in a sense affirm each of these and hold them in a balance that if you will balance them, one does not absorb and eat the other. And that if you affirm these and hold these in a balance, you'll find yourselves in a tension that you cannot fulfill or resolve logically in any way, shape, or form. 
But in that kind of logical tension, I'll, I'll submit that we don't have to land and end this morning in, in a sense division by discussion. We don't have to end in this morning by paralysis, by analysis. But I think we can end with a logical tension, but with some very practical applications of what this is meant to do in our life. And what it was meant to do is so often different than what it often typically does in our life. It wasn't meant to be a huge debate that c- creates all kinds of division. It also wasn't meant to be the kind of thing that as you look forward in life that it creates all kinds of paralysis. It was meant to do something different. And so we're going to try to land this morning not with just a bunch of intellectual theological jargon, but I want to land you guys this morning in a place that's incredibly practical and, and very much at the ground of where you and I live. And so where are we going to start this morning? We're going to start by praying and asking that God will intervene in our time, all right? Why don't you guys bow with me? Lord, we just uh, come before you this morning humbly, um, admitting and confessing that the thing that we're going to re- wrestle with this morning is something that even at the end of this morning, even with 300 passages that we won't look at all of them, but even with as many passages as we will look at, Lord, our mental ability to grasp, um, logic to think, to reason will not land us in a place that we can absolutely resolve the tension that is in the scriptures. And Father, I pray that you would land us in a place instead that you would allow us to see a little more clearly of who you are. And that you would give us humility to wrestle with and realize the fact that we can't grasp all things in ourselves. And in that, Lord, I pray that you give us a greater reverence for who you are. That your ways are unsearchable, your judgments are un- unfathomable, Lord. That you are so far beyond us. That you aren't just holy in purity and set apart in purity, but that you are holy even reason and wisdom and in counsel. And Father, I pray that you give us a reverence this morning in that. And even for me as I speak, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to speak into that which you revealed, but you would allow me to not take us into places beyond which you've spoken. And that you would give me a humility as we walk through this and that you would allow my words to be yours and that your spirit would guide us, Lord. Um, what a challenging topic, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that you grant us greater understanding and that you would teach us and lead us and guide us this morning. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right. We're going to start off uh, on one side of the coin this morning, on the coin of God's choice. We're going to start off with God's sovereignty, His predestination, His election. A lot of theological terms, but let me kind of take you to the text and show you, in a sense, what we mean when we say God is sovereign or what we mean when we say that God is predestined or elected some. What does that mean? I'm going to start you guys off in Ephesians chapter 1. Have it on the screen for you guys if you'd like. I'll read it from the text. Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. It's Ephesians 1. Paul started out this great book of Ephesians. If you guys were with us in small groups last fall, we studied the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, basically, Paul starts out and says, hey, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have an amazing laundry list of blessings. God has given you every blessing under the heavens. And in fact, he's going to start off in the pinnacle blessing that he's going to talk about is this idea of God's choice, God's predestination, or His election. What in the world does it mean, all right? Um, I'm going to give you guys a few passages that we'll kind of walk through it, but I'm going to start you guys off in Ephesians 1 because I think just from some simple observation, there's a lot you can grasp about what it means that God has chosen or God has elected. Where are we going to start? First of all, when did God choose? Simple observation, when? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That God's choice is sovereign election or predestination was something God did far before the world was ever created and formed even before you and I were born. So something He did far before all of that. In fact, he goes on further and he says that he did it. How did he do it? He did it through Jesus Christ himself. He did it according to the kind intention of his will. That God's choice, his election, his predestination was something that is in accordance with the kind intention of his will. 
that his choice is something that highlights and manifests and demonstrates his kindness, his mercy, and his grace. But what was the purpose of this choice? What was it meant to do in our lives? What was it meant to do for us? We find a couple of things. One of all, uh, that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself. What was this meant to do? God's choice of us was, in a sense, his, his means by which he would begin to adopt us as his children. That it is his choice that then brings us into his family. In fact, second of all, the thing I want you guys to see also from Ephesians 1 is what else did this do for us? It didn't just lead to our adoption, but it did something else. Notice uh, it ends, uh, uh, verse 6 ends, that, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. That the idea of God's predestination, the idea of God's election, that the ultimate purpose of it was that it would lead to our adoption, and second of all, that having been adopted, it would lead to our praise and our worship of a God who chose us far before creation. That ultimately this thing often for most of us leads to greater confusion, greater debate, greater division, greater paralysis. But what it was meant to do, and we'll come back to this as we end the morning, was meant to lead to our worship and our reverence of God. In fact, I think we've gotten it all wrong. And I think the reasons we've gotten it a little bit wrong are because we've missed a few of the other passages that speak of it. And so what does it mean that God has elected? How did God elect us? One of the big questions that's out there is how did God's knowledge, foreknowledge, impact his choice of us? Peter will bring this up in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says this. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Asia Minor, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter says this, that God's choice, how was it provoked? How was it motivated? It was provoked or motivated because of his foreknowledge. At least one of the greater mysteries of election, which was already a big mystery, and that's this. How did God's foreknowledge impact or provoke his choice of some? Often, many will say this, that in a sense, God looks down the quarters of time, and some people will say that what God foreknew, what God knew beforehand was this. God knew whether you would choose him or not, and knowing that you would choose him, he chose you. That's what some would say. I want to argue that, that I don't think that's what the biblical testimony is. God's predestination, God's election, is not a looking down through the corridors of time, knowing what you will do, and then choosing you. And I'm going to give you guys a lot of passages of why I think that is. But if you were, and I were to take that out of the idea of election and sovereignty and put it in the idea of gambling, what would that be? Cheating. All right, if God was betting on the ponies and he knew which one was going to win the race and so he bet on that pony, God is not wise. God is cheating, right? Uh, if you take that into investments, if God knows what's going to happen down the road and therefore he makes an investment, that's insider trading, right? And I think that's contrary to the biblical witness of how and why God chose. In fact, for, uh, Ephesians 1 will say God chose according to the kind intention of his will. If God knew what was going to happen and he chose because he knew what was going to happen, that's not kindness, that's certainty. He's not doing something that's kind. He's doing something that he knows is going to turn out right. Let me give you guys a few other passages. How does God, in a sense, what does God foreknow and how does what he foreknow lead to his choice? All right, Jeremiah chapter 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated, I chose, I set you apart. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says to Jeremiah, hey, before you were even born, I knew you. And, and because I knew you, I chose you. And since I chose you, then I set you apart for a purpose. Um, in fact, Romans 9, I think, helps out even more. Speaking of God's choice of Jacob over Esau, uh, the passage says this, Though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. Notice, why does God choose? God does not choose on the basis of works, but he chooses based on his own call and his own decision and his own kindness. God's choice is not on the basis of works. God does not look down the quarter of time and know what you will do, and therefore he chooses you. 
In fact, he chooses based on a foreknowledge, not of what your will and action will be, but based on you. What he foreknows and what he knows is you. And because of those that he sees and those that he foreknows, he chooses and he chooses them and they are going to be saved. And we'll get to all this in a minute about how that fits with our decisions and our actions in a minute. But what I want you guys to see is God's choice is built on his foreknowledge. And God's foreknowledge is not in respect to your action and your will, but in respect to you and your person. In fact, what makes God's choice kind, gracious, and merciful is because it is in the opposite direction of what you would have been apart from his choice. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. Notice God's choice and his foreknowledge is of men and women that are not in and of themselves great potential. They're going to turn out great. They're a great stock to invest in. But he's actually choosing bad stocks. (laughs) If you're here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that ought to be a little bit of an insult. (laughs) That in whatever kindness and mercy God had, he looked out and he chose men and women that were weak, that were foolish, and he decided that through his choice of them and who he would make them become and how they would grow, that his glory would be seen all the more by what would become of what was once weak, once shameful, and what would grow under the kindness and the mercy and the Spirit of God. If you're here this morning and you do know Jesus Christ, it's because he chose you prior to eternity. And he chose you not because of what you would do, but in fact, he chose you to, to reverse a trend of where you were going. In fact, the scriptures are absolutely clear that you and I are all depraved and set apart and wicked. In reality, you and I are all on a path and a bent and hostile hostile and rebellion against God. And the reality of God's choice is that all are going in that one direction. And so none of us, if left to ourselves, would have gone in a direction to God. God, in his choice and in his grace and his mercy, chose us. And some of us uh, will end up turning. But the uh, the great contradiction, the great difficulty, if you know where I'm going, is this. How in the world, if God chose us and he changed our course, how in the world does that fit with our choice? Did you and I choose God or did God choose us? If God looked in the eternity past and looked and he saw you and he chose you, how did that fit and how does that relate to your own choice, either of him or choice in life or decisions in life? How in the world does God's choice and will impact and relate to you and I and our will and our decisions? That's where we're going to go next, all right? So not just God's choice, but man's responsibility. I'm going to give you guys, in a sense, two sides of the coin. And where I want to do and where I want to go first is show you this. Both issues, both truths throughout the scriptures, are put right side by side. In a sense, the scriptures will say that God chose you, and then it will say that you chose God. <laughs> it will say that you need to work out your salvation, and then it will say, though, that that work actually is something God does in you. And what you're going to see over and over again throughout the scriptures is that God's choice and your choice, side by side, screaming contradiction of how they fit together, but it's not resolved, it's not pulled apart. Let me give you guys a few examples. John chapter 1. For those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ, did you choose God or did God choose you? Here's what John says. John 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So, did you choose or did God choose? You chose. You believed. You received. But then look what he says next. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says, you received him, you believed him, but actually it was not a work that you did. It was actually something God did in you. Um, let me give you guys another example. Philippians chapter 2. This is not regarding your, one's initial belief in God, but this is regarding one's uh, a process of walking with God and obeying the commands of God. Notice what Paul says next in Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
So whose responsibility is it to work out your salvation? God or yours? Paul starts out and says, yours. Then he goes on further and says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. (laughs) Again, Paul puts these right side by side. He calls you to work it out, but he says, actually, when you work it out, it's actually God in you. So in a sense, you don't even get credit. But both, the call is to both. In a sense, you have to respond, and yet even when you respond, God is in that. And so is it God or is it man? Yes. <laughs> is it God or is it man? Yes. Um, let me guys take you even to where it gets even stronger language. All right, Romans 9. Romans 9 says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If God is sovereign and he's going to harden whoever he wants to harden and he's going to choose whoever he wants to choose, then how could he still find fault and hold man accountable? That makes sense? Are you with me? This is where the contradiction, this is where the tension is. If God is that sovereign, then how in the world are you and I ever held accountable for anything we do? If God is sovereign and he's predetermined something to such an extent, then you and I shouldn't be held accountable because he's chosen it. I would argue, and I think we're going to go and try to show you guys the rest of this morning, that that is an extent and a view of sovereignty that goes a little too far. That in a sense, God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty in a way that allows for real and accountable decisions by humanity. In fact, that's why he's going to say in Romans 10, here's why you are accountable. Romans 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Notice Romans 10 goes a completely different angle. Romans 9 is saying, hey, God is sovereign. He will harden who he wants to harden. He will soften who he wants to soften. And it's such, such an extent that you begin to wonder, well, then why would God ever hold me accountable for any decision I make? Romans 10 comes back and it balances out Romans 9 and it says, look, even though God has made some decisions in eternity past, you are still held accountable because every single person has an opportunity to believe. All have an opportunity to respond to the call of Christ, to believe in the death and burial resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if one has not believed and one will stand one day in the future and be condemned by Jesus Christ at the pearly gates of heaven, you are condemned not because God didn't choose you. You are condemned because you rejected the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures put these side by side that God has chosen and yet man also is accountable and responsible for his decision. Where do you go from this? How do you kind of walk this out? I'm going to give you guys a few options of the way that people typically will resolve some of this tension, all right? God is sovereign, man is accountable. How do you fit these two things together? Um, I've often said that I think a lot of theology is not either or, a lot of it's both and. So it's a lot like walking into a restaurant from Marcy and I, and I've used this analogy before, but we walk in, we order uh, a dinner, and then dessert time comes, and Marcy will ask me, hey, do you want cheesecake or a brownie sundae? Again, I think at the dessert table, like a lot of times I think at theology, and that's why the either or, all right? Both and, right? Uh, a lot of theology is like the dessert table for me. It doesn't have to be either or. It, it more often than not actually is both and. And I want to submit to you guys that in a sense, I think what a lot of theological systems, and we're about to go pretty deep here, and I'm going to give you guys some labels and some names here in a minute, um, I think what a lot of people do is, is they wrestle with this tension because they don't like the tension. They're going to end up constructing either sovereignty or free will in such a way that one of them swallows the other. So, for example, in a sense, it's like if you put a PC guy and a Mac guy in the same room, only one of those guys is emerging, all right? Because one of them will defeat and eat the other, all right? Or you could put two guys in an MMA ring in a cage, all right? Only one is emerging from the cage, Okay. I'm going to give you guys two views, and in each of these views, I think what you're going to have here is a a view that is going to, in a sense, have one of these views eating and consuming the other and emerging outside uh, of the ring, all right? So, what are the views? And then we'll kind of walk through it and try to explain it a little bit. So, here we go. 
First view is a view known as the Arminian position, okay? You don't necessarily need to know all these labels. We're just going to kind of walk through it. Hang with me, all right? So here's the view. Arminians believe this, that in a sense, God looked down the corridor of time. He knew what you were going to do. He was an insider trader, and he chose you. In a sense, what man's will will do holds God's will hostage. In a sense, your choice always determines what God will do. That, that, that view, in a sense, then allows you to merit your salvation and also allows you to lose your salvation. Um, one of the guys that I'm going to kind of illustrate this with was not necessarily as seriously connected with Arminianism, but I think he's going to portray this really well for us. There's a guy named Charles Finney. He was around in the 1800s. Other than looking really strange, all right, here is how he's significant, okay? Uh, he uh, was very, very popular, and a lot of what he would do in the early 1800s was something that would move toward um, some of seeds for Methodism, all right? And here's what he did. He, he would hold camp meetings. He would gather a bunch of people in a town, and he, he would preach at them. He, he, w- he was a real believer that if you had a lot of music, you could get people's emotions up. And then if you brought the Word of God, you could convict and challenge. And then if you brought a series of methods during a church service, you could control the outcome. So we have music, get emotions high. We have a speaker, teaches the Word, challenges and convicts. But here's what Finney would do. Finney went even further than some of the things you see us do. Here's what Finney did. He actually would go around in town and he'd find out who was not a believer in the town. He'd find out who was sleeping with who, who had all kinds of rampant sins. And then what he would do is he'd either try to meet them early and then get them to sit on the front row, or he'd know their names. And then during his sermon, he would begin to call out to them personally. All right? So imagine being in a service and the pastor is going right at you personally in front of everybody. All right? And then he'd have the people here at the front row that he called the anxious bench, all right? And what he'd end up doing at the end of the service is that he'd start laboring and going on and on and on, calling for change, calling for conviction, calling for conversion. And he would draw this on to such an emotional pitch and to such a pressurized situation that he had what was the first known as the altar call, all right? So he'd start calling people forward right out of the stands, right out from the front bench. And what he believed was this that if you pressured the human will long enough and hard enough, you could convince the human will to do anything. All right. So if you've got enough music and enough emotion, if you've got enough of a powerful commanding speaker who could challenge and convict, and then you had a set of methods in the church service, you could actually control and create revival. And so, in many regards, the idea was this, that if you had method A, B, C, and D, you could guarantee revival, conversion, and the supernatural. But the problem is this. <laughs> The human will is not in a place that if you just persuade it enough with good things, it will always do the right thing, right? That, that Finney had a view of humanity that was not one that was horribly and completely depraved. Finney had a view of humanity that said that the will actually was not completely broken, were not hostile to God, but if you just sugared it up enough, it would always do the right thing, all right? That's a complete error, <laughs> and again, from what we would hold from the scriptural teaching of human depravity. Um, in fact, that's why, in response to a lot of Arminianism, the other flip side of this is what's known as Calvinism. All right, now, um, for those who come from a Reformed angle or come from a Calvinistic background, don't slay me just yet, all right? Okay. Um, what I'm going to present here is not, in a sense, basic or moderate Calvinism, but hyper-super-Calvinism, all right? So it's not your normal run-of-the-mill Calvinism, right? I'm going to try to unflesh it and unpack it. And what I'm going to submit to you is this, that Arminianism, in a sense, put sovereignty and free will in a room, Free will ate sovereignty. God became hostage to man, okay? What I'm going to argue to you is this, that in a sense, extreme Calvinism is going to put human sovereignty and man's free will in a room, and what's going to emerge is sovereignty because it's going to eat man's will, all right? Uh, this is MMA at its best, all right? Here's the deal. So what do I mean? How does this come about? It's, uh, 
Some of you all know this thing called TULIP, all right? This is not your normal Sunday morning. We're going to go kind of deeper. Uh, take some notes, hang with me, and we'll have lunch afterwards if you want to ask some questions, okay? But Calvinism did what, they, what Arminianism should have done and what Paul does. Calvinism begins theologically at human depravity, which is exactly where Paul began in Romans 1, all right? Paul's going to create this gigantic treatise of a book, and where does he begin? The same place that Calvinism begins, and that's at human depravity. That if man is utterly broken, that if every faculty of his is limited and hostile to God, then God has to act, otherwise he'll never change. And Calvinism is exactly right. That if God does not act, if God does not move toward you and I, you and I are left and on a path toward hostility of God, toward rebellion. We will all go that route. All right. So Calvinism starts off with a T, which means totally depraved. Calvin was from California, and he loved totally. All right. Just kidding, all right? Uh, but T's are totally depraved. So Calvinism starts at depravity, that man is totally depraved. Not just a little bit, not just a bit, but every faculty, mind, emotion, will, everything in him is bent because of the fall of Genesis 3. That even in our very best moments, even an unredeemed unbeliever, even in his best moments, when he's doing the best thing imaginable, serving in a soup kitchen, there's something in his heart that you cannot see externally that is doing it for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, or it feels like it's motivating or making him feel better or more righteous about himself. That human depravity says that nothing you and I can do is ultimately ever going to amount to what will please God and suffice to God because at the very root of who we are, we are bent, wicked, and all about self. All right? Calvinism begins there and says that T, totally depraved. And because man is totally depraved, God has to act, and that act that Calvinism would call would be unconditional election. Unconditional in that, if I understand it right, that God does not choose based on conditions of what you're going to do. He chooses unconditionally. It has nothing with respect to an individual. God just chooses, all right? Like we saw from Jeremiah, like we saw from Romans, like we saw from 1 Corinthians. That God's choice is all about his own decision. It's not with respect to a person's will whatsoever. But extreme Calvinism goes a little bit further. Extreme Calvinism will say this, that not only does God choose some for salvation, but he chooses some for hell. And some of that comes from the, some of the ways that you could read Romans 9. I think it's an improper reading, but the idea was this, that if, God, if man is totally depraved, then God has chosen, and God's sovereignty then has deemed and elected and directed some for heaven and some for hell. All right? Okay, and if that's the case, then the L stands for limited atonement, and here's why. If God has chosen from all of eternity to send some to heaven and to some to hell, then God did not die for all people. Because if some are decreed and determined for hell, then God has only died for those that he's chosen for heaven. Make sense? Um, And here's the deal. What you see in extreme Calvinism, and why I'm going to argue that I think extreme Calvinism has a view of sovereignty that eats man's will, is because of this. That extreme Calvinism begins from the very standpoint of not of God's holiness, but of God's sovereignty. And from God's sovereignty, everything moves out and moves forward and affects every other part of theology. All right? So God is so sovereign that he chooses some for heaven, some for hell. And since he's chosen some for heaven, some for hell, Christ did not die for all, but he only died for those that he chose for heaven. That's L, limited atonement. He atoned not unlimitedly for all, but limited for some. And here's the deal. Um, That change and that move of sovereignty, I'm going to show you guys a little bit later this morning, has dramatic effects for how you and I live and has dramatic effects for the kind of security that you and I can find in a relationship with God. And that's where we're going to kind of end this morning. But, and I think that's a shift beyond the scope of what the biblical revelation has said about sovereignty. All right? But since God has atoned only for the elect, 
then in a sense what you're going to see the rest of this thing forward is that as God chooses, nothing that he would will is resistible. So I is for irresistible grace. So God has chosen, Christ has died for the elect, and then he's granted grace, and that grace cannot be resisted. So it cannot be resisted that those who have been chosen will believe, and I will hold that, I believe that, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But it also would say, not just it's irresistible that you will believe, but it's irresistible that you will then continue on in a life of good works. That you cannot resist the purpose, the will, the plan of God. All right? I'm going to submit to you guys this morning that I think, in a sense, that's a, 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 a biblical view of sovereignty that's, that's ramped up on steroids that has consumed man's will. All right? So, where do I want to go with you guys this morning? I want to give you guys more of a balanced position, okay? Um, and I want to do this with humility because I'm not using the word biblical, okay? Um, I, I think Arminians and Calvinists, even, even extreme Calvinists, are, are doing their best with the text, the Bible. They're all trying to be biblical, okay? Let me give you guys an analogy. I think theology um, is a lot like art, okay? Here's what I mean. Um, our first year of marriage, Marcy and I lived in Dallas. Uh, a certain day every week, the Dallas Museum of Art had a free night, so we were a poor seminary couple. We had no money. So we did all that we could for free. So we went to Dallas Museum of Art. And one of the things we would do, since my wife is the creative one of our marriage, is we'd walk in, we'd be looking at art. I'm the engineer. I don't see anything, okay? Um, and I don't know why people would paint with abstract craziness. It does not look like an ear, all right? You know, paint me an ear. You know, like, why is this craziness? So, all right, so we'd walk in, and, and Marcy would always try to help expand my creativity. And so she would look at a painting. We'd see people in, in, in a farm or whatever. And, and she'd say, hey, what do you see? But what she wanted me to do is she wanted me to take the picture and create a story that was all within the picture, all right? And so what do you do when you do that? You're looking for a few things that just stand out, and what you find that stands out then becomes the, the, the lens by which you begin to construct a story of all that you see, all right? So we'd have some, you know, couple with a dog on a farm, and, you know, they were in South Kentucky, and we created this gigantic story, all right? Here's what I mean. I think theology is a lot like that in this sense, a lot of what theologians are doing are not necessarily always a discussion outside of the frame of theology. All right? A lot of times what biblical theologians are doing is they're looking at the picture of the scripture and all these stories and all these depictions of God's character, God's activity. And what we're doing and what we often do is we have certain things that stand out to us. All right? So we look at the picture and certain things stand out. So for the Arminian, what stands out is man's choice, man's ability to impact the will, the plan, of God. For the extreme Calvinist, what stands out is God's sovereignty. And because of that, that becomes the focal point that defines everything within the picture. And I think what's happened is you have a vocal point and a, and a view of the entire picture that is, in a sense, out of balance. So what I want to do for you guys this morning is construct for you guys what I think, in all humility, is a better balanced view of how sovereignty and free will fit together. All right? So that's kind of where we're going this morning. All right? So how do we do this? I'm going to give you guys two kind of framing questions because I think the debate goes to the extremes. It goes to, if, if there's a balance between these, then in a sense, how determinative is God? If God has a will, how determinative and how, how, to what extent does he ensure it? To what extent can you not resist it? So how determinative is God? I'm going to start off Romans 8. Paul says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those, these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So a couple of things I want you guys to see from Romans 8. How determinative is God's will? To what extent can it not be resisted? I'd say this. 
A couple of things you see, first part of it. We know all things God causes to work together for good. So God can take all kinds of human decisions, even evil, even suffering, and he and somehow in his wisdom can, can bring good out of that and can still move human history toward the place that he's moving it. Second thing I think you see in terms of how determinative is God is, God is this. That those whom he's foreknown, those he's predestined, all of those will be justified. Um, if God has elected some, they inevitably will come to faith. Now, I don't know how that happens, okay? I don't know how uh, one that's been elected ends up also making a decision and trusting Christ and that always meets in the middle, all right? But I think what you see from the biblical testimony is that those whom he's predestined, they all are going to be justified, forgiven of their sins, and then all of those also will one day stand in the presence of God and be glorified, have a redeemed body. In fact, I think what you see through the scriptures as you see prophecy and different things like that, is God is moving human history and he's always moving it toward a human climax. And that climax does not depend or hinge on man's obedience or response. Because man cannot thwart certain purposes of God. A day is coming when someone from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be before the throne of God. A day is coming when Israel, even though they have disobeyed and rejected their Messiah, a day is coming in which Israel one day will be Uh, return to the land, will be repentant, and will receive their king, Jesus, when he returns. There are a whole lot of things, prophecy-related, eschatology, future times-related, that are unthwartable. God will redeem and bring about human history to that climax, and he will do it through humans who are weak, who are fragile, who are impossible at times. And the great wonder of his sovereignty is that he's able to take all human decisions, and he's still able to move human history where he's taken it. But realize this that even though there are certain things that are not thwartable of God's will, there are certain things we see from the scriptures that he has desired or willed, and yet they don't come about. So, um, for example, God desires that all would be saved, but, but not all are saved. And since how can God elect some, but desire all to be saved? That there's there's a, a contradiction and a clash, and I think one of the things you begin to see through the scriptures is that Although God has a sovereign rule and intention and design for certain things, he allows some freedom for that even to be resisted. There are certain things that one cannot thwart of the plan and purpose of God, but there are certain things that one can thwart. Here's what I mean. It gets to this second question. That's this. How free or resistant is man? How free or resistant is man? To what extent can man resist God's sovereign rule? I'd argue he can quite a bit. And I think you saw that from Genesis 3. That God had a purpose, he had a plan, he had called Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden, he said, hey, I want you to manage this garden, and I want you to walk in the garden, I want you to know me. But in his sovereignty, he extended humanity freedom, and and humanity chose apart from him. That was not uh, something that he was causal to, it was not something that he necessarily delighted in. But it was something that he allowed, and in him allowing that, he's still going to work all things for good, and he's still going to move human history to where he intended it, even though it looked like Genesis 3 led to a revolt and a rebellion that threw the whole plan whack. The reality of your scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is what you're going to see is even though the fall in Genesis 3 threw everything out of whack, all of the rest of your scriptures is showing that God is moving humanity back to a place that they can rule and represent for God and overcome what occurred in Genesis 3. God's purposes and his plans, in a sense, ultimately cannot be thwarted. But particularly, often for you and I, in our own particular circumstances, in our day and time, there's a lot of freedom to resist him. Um, why is that? Why would I say that? Um, ultimately, I'm going to give you guys two views of man. All right? View one of man is the man prior to trusting in Jesus Christ. Luther would say that uh, tr- prior to trusting in Jesus Christ, that you and I are all depraved, wicked, and in a sense controlled by Satan and our flesh and all that is hostile to God. 
In a sense, Luther would say in a book known as The Bondage of the Will that uh, unredeemed humanity can only avail themselves to sin. That that is our only choice. That even when we think we're doing good, that even in that good, there's something wicked going on within our heart and within our mind. Um, In fact, the scriptures, uh, Luther would say that the commands in the scriptures actually weren't meant to actually tell you what you can do. They were meant to show you what you can't do. So even in God's law, even in his revealed will, part of that actually is resistible to show you you can't do it and that you need a savior. And if you're here this morning and you continue to wrestle with morality and you continue to wrestle with trying to do all that you can that's good, thinking that that will earn, your, earn you salvation or earn you the favor of God, let me tell you, all those commands, all that morality is, is a means that highlight and mirror for you that you cannot do it all correctly. <laughs> that God and God alone is holy. God and God alone is set apart. That only he can pull that off. And what he wants you to see is that you can't and that you're in need of a savior. You're in need of one who's died on your behalf. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, a dramatic transition occurs, not just that your sins are forgiven, but a transition occurs according to Romans chapter 6. And here's the transition, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul says, hey, there was a dramatic change of slavery. That you were once a slave to sin, but now you are no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave of righteousness. But the reality is, even for the believer in Jesus Christ, positionally that you and I are now slaves to righteousness, but in reality we can still allow sin to reign in our life. Which is why Paul will say a few verses earlier, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, because it still can. Even though God has called you to holiness and morality, even for a redeemed believer who's had their sins forgiven, even we can still sin. That's why First John will say, hey, confess your sins and he's faithful and righteous to forgive you. The book of Corinthians will say that even a believing church could have rampant, horrific sin in their midst. That even a believer can sin pretty horribly. And 1 Corinthians will show us in chapter 5 and even in chapter 11 that even a genuine believer can sin so bad that God would take them home early. That a sin could actually lead to death and they could be taken home into the presence of God early. So even a genuine believer can sin and resist the will and the plan of God for holiness quite a bit. And so I would argue in some regards that even though um, that we've been redeemed and we've been brought into a relationship with God, that in a sense, the will of man has not yet been completely uh, put at submission to the will of God. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet says this regarding the new covenant. It says, Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The new covenant here in Ezekiel is, was a promise to come. It didn't begin in Ezekiel 36. It began actually in the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, when Christ said, hey, this is the cup of the new covenant. And that cup of the new covenant inaugurated and began a new covenant arrangement with God and his people. And in that new covenant arrangement with God and his people, he granted them forgiveness of sins. He put within them his spirit so as to begin to transform their desires and their abilities so they could actually walk out, delight in, and obey God. But here is the problem for you and I. And here is why I think there's a, an ability for man to still resist the will of God, because what he did for us was just partial. Ezekiel 36 says, When this thing is fulfilled, that the Spirit of God will cause you, and in a sense, enable you and move you to walk in his ways. But that is not yet perfectly happening. In fact, even in, earlier in Ezekiel, he'll say that in that day there won't be a need for a teacher because each of you will know the, uh, God from the least of them to the greatest. That day has not yet come because this is a promise that is in a sense already, but not yet. <laughs> in a sense, we already have had our sins forgiven and yet in a not yet way, our hearts and our lives have not been completely transformed yet. And because of that, Paul will say in Romans eight twenty three that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
We don't have the entirety of the Spirit yet. We have the first fruits, a down payment, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We have the first installment. And because of that first installment, you and I have the ability to overcome sin, but we don't yet have the ability to actually completely reach perfection and resist all of the power of sin yet. And that's why Paul will say in Ephesians, or Romans 8, 23, that you and I groan within ourselves. There is a battle still going on, a battle between our flesh that is still hostile to God and a battle between the Spirit that is trying to pull us to, to delight in and obey God. The reality for you and I is that you and I are a walking, living battle of wills. <laughs> that every day, every decision is the Spirit of God calling us to what God has called you and I to, and yet a flesh and a, and a will that is not yet completely transformed and redeemed that is pulling away. You and I are a walking battle of wills. And if that's the case... And if you and I can still resist God to such an extent, then where do you and I go with this? What was this all meant to be? Where do we wrap up this morning, all right? Eventually, what I want to do for you guys is is admit to you guys, Spurgeon would say that when asked, how do you reconcile sovereignty and free will? He said this, you don't need to reconcile friends. That ultimately, these two have been together for so long that they are actually impossible to figure out where one meets and the other meets. Uh, My college roommates and I spent so much time together in college that people and our friends began to not know whose jokes were who. Um, in fact, that was insulting to me because all the funny jokes were mine. And so when my roommates got uh, you know, credit for a funny joke that they got from me, I got really offended because people do not know anymore where Michael, my roommate, began and I ended, right? They didn't know where we were to be pulled apart. In the same regard, I think sovereignty and free will have been together from the garden. They've always been together, and it's impossible to see where they meet. And because it's impossible to see where they meet, what people begin to do is try to pull them apart. Or if they can't pull them apart, they have one just absorb and eat and consume the other. What I want you guys to do and where I want you guys to land this morning is affirming that God is sovereign and that man also has a will that can resist and can choose in the same regard to such an extent that man is accountable for their decisions. In fact, I don't think that man resisting the will of God at all threatens the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God can handle a little bit of resistance, all right? In fact, I think if we resist the will of God, it does not threaten his sovereignty and it does not also make him culpable for our resistance or our sin, all right? So where do we go with this? Where do we end? Where do we wrap up? A couple things. One is I wanted you guys to see that, that God in his sovereignty incorporates man's will into the way that he's moving human history forward. A couple examples. Acts 2. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Uh, Peter in Acts 2 will say uh, to the audience he's speaking to, hey, God had a plan. His plan was to have his Messiah crucified and provide a sacrifice for sins, but you are accountable because you crucified him. On a much more positive angle, Second Peter 3 says, In light of the day is coming which all will be destroyed that you and I see today in our world, he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Notice that. That you and I are looking for a day that's coming which God will return. He'll destroy all that you and I see and he'll recreate everything. And not only are we looking for it, Peter will say that you and I can hasten it. That's fascinating. That you and I, in the way that we participate with God, can actually hasten the coming and the return of God. Is it predetermined? Does God know when he's coming back? How do you answer that? Again, those things are wedded together in a mystery that's really difficult to pull apart. So ultimately, where do we go? How do we hold these things together? Ultimately, if this issue and this discussion is leading to a, a, discu- a division by discussion or is leading to paralysis by analysis, I would submit to you guys that it's being misused. If you're debating and it's creating all kinds of division and hostility with your friends, stop it. <laughs> all right, it's not what it's meant to do, okay? Also, if you guys are wondering, hey, uh, if God has chosen some, then should I be sharing with people or how does that work itself out? I'd argue, again, if you're finding yourself 
in a sense, paralyzed by analyzing this kind of thing, then again, that's not what it's meant to do. So what was it meant to do? I'm going to give you guys three quick deals, and we'll wrap up and we'll end, because I know we're going a little bit over time. But this is a big issue, and we have lunch for you later. So, all right, I'll take your time, all right? All right, first thing I think, where is this thing meant to lead us? Where were we meant to wrap up with this? I think, first of all, it was meant to allow you and I to rest secure. Why do I say that? That which we have turned into a puzzle to our minds was originally intended to be a pillow for our hearts. The idea of the sovereignty of God alongside of man's will, man's accountability, man's responsibility to participate in what God is doing, that was meant to be something that brought great comfort to the people of God. In fact, if you think about Romans 8 in that context where you have that great statement, right after it comes this idea that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. What did they think could separate them from the love of Christ? He says sword, peril, disease, all kinds of things. They were under persecution. They were struggling. And the, the great comfort for them was, hey, God is sovereign. God is in control. None of this is out of his hands. You can find security in him. In fact, same thing for 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we read that earlier that, that, that he addresses his audience as those that were aliens chosen of God. And it was great comfort because even though they were aliens and since their culture had rejected them, they were chosen by God and that brought great encouragement and great security. I want to submit to you guys, though, that for some, this has begun to go a different direction. First John will say this, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And a correct understanding of sovereignty allows for an understanding that one can know right now whether they are saved and whether they have eternal security. Do you know that if you trust in Jesus Christ that you can know right now that without, with all confidence in the world that you will be in the presence of God when you die? John says, writes that and says, I want you to know that those who believe can know right now that they have eternal life. I would argue that I think some have begun to construct a view of sovereignty that has begun to diminish and not allow for this. Remember, I, I took you guys earlier to the L in Tulip, and the idea, if God has only died for the elect, then you cannot look at the cross and know whether you were saved or not. Why? Because he may not have died for you. And the moment that the reformers began to move toward limited atonement was the moment they also began to move, move away from eternal security. Because if you look at the cross and he may or may not have died for you, then you cannot know whether you are saved, even if you have great orthodoxy. But the way that you can know if you are saved, according to them, would be look at your lifestyle. If you are living a life of good works and you have assurance and you have a groundwork of stability to know that you are saved. In reality, it means you don't have security until the day you die. But if God has blessed and God has chosen unconditional based on who you are, what you will do, then his choice and his promises that are unconditional in nature cannot be earned by what you do, nor can they be lost by what you do. Good works merit, good works demonstrate your faith, but the absence of works does not necessarily show that you are not saved. But if you look at the cross and you see and you believe that Jesus died and resurrected for you and he died for all people, then you can know that you are saved. It's a little bonus. If some of you guys want to talk about that more, come back to me after lunch. We'll talk through that a little bit more. Second thing, though, uh, not just that it would provide security that you and I can know that God deals with us unconditionally, that if he's made promises, they're irrevocable. Therefore, we can know without shadow of a doubt that we're secure in his hands. The second thing is this, that it was meant to cause you and I to revere God. Again, that which we cannot grasp, how sovereignty, free will fit together, it causes us to realize that God's ways are higher than ours. His wisdom is higher than ours. And it was meant to cause you to step back and praise and worship him. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The fact that you can't completely understand everything about God's character and his ways makes it really hard for me to teach on this (laughs) because I don't completely understand it. But it also means that it does not mean that it's necessarily wrong. 
The fact that you cannot understand everything and get your mind around it all was meant to cause you to hit your knees in worship and reverence for him who is higher and better and more smart and wiser than you. The last thing I think it does for us is it causes us and challenges us to reach the lost. God is not so sovereign that he does not need you or he has not chosen to use you in the way that he's going to bring about salvation to all people. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 2.10, and this is where we're going to end this morning. Paul says, uh, in verse 9, he says that even though I'm in prison, the word of God is not imprisoned. That God is sovereign no matter my circumstances. And that leads him to say in verse 10, therefore, I endure all things. In a book, a lot about suffering, what he's saying is I will suffer, I will be in prison, I'll go through anything that those who are chosen, those who are elect, so that they may obtain salvation. Notice what Paul says there in 2 Timothy 2. God is sovereign, and yet in his sovereignty, he has chosen to involve and participate you and I to bring about his purposeful will that is moving toward a human climax of history. That you and I are participators in that. Paul says, I know that, and I'm going to jump in. Because he cannot be thwarted with where he's moving this, but I want to be involved, and I want to participate. What I want to ask you this morning in the midst of whether you've understood all this is this. Are you participating in where he's moving human history? Because it is going to be unthwartable and it is the greatest investment you can make because nothing will overturn it. But how are you participating today? Are you involved or are you on the sidelines? Are you coming on a Sunday morning and just listening and consuming? But are you jumping in, serving here in our church and also jumping in on campus and sharing the gospel of good news and suffering for those who've never heard the gospel before? Are you participating in where God is moving human history because the role that you have is a participator? He's called you, he's designed you, he's created you to join him with him in this as he weaves your role, your response, and his sovereignty and where he's moving all of this together in the future. And those are wedded together in such a way that causes and challenges us to jump in the ring and jump in and participate. But how are you participating? That's kind of where I want to end this morning. Let me pray for us, um, and then we're going to uh, jump into lunch. Sorry that we went so long. This is kind of a, a heavy topic and a meaty topic. Um, we're, after I'll, I'll bless the meal and love for you guys to jump in, and also my wife, Marcy, um, is going to be taking pictures. We'd love for you guys to say what we're trying to do is uh, create a wall of faces of Southwood. Um, as we have grown, uh, honestly, a lot of you guys are attending here, but we want, we want us to know each other a little bit better. And so we want you guys to feel like you walk in here and people know you, people know you by name. And so that's kind of what we're trying to create and, and try to uh, enable. So, so we're not just trying to paparazzi get your picture, all right? That's kind of the deal. All right, so let me pray for us. Father God, you are great and you are mighty. And you are holy and you are set apart, not just in your purity, I mean, in your morality, but you are set apart in your wisdom. Um, Lord, there are things that we will never, with two hours, with five hours, with months, actually wrestle through and determine with great clarity. Um, and Father, this is one of those things this morning. And, and yet, even going long, thinking we're going to get greater clarity, the reality is there's certain things of this that we will never fully grasp. And I pray in that that you would give us a heart that would revere and would honor and adore you. And that we realize that you are set apart, that you are the maker and creator, and that you have designed life in a way for us to participate. Father, I pray that you would cause us and allow us to find great security in you, that you would cause us to get off the sidelines and jump into what you are doing in the way that you are moving human history. And Father, I thank you for this morning. I ask that you would just grant us a, a rich time as we gather and as we eat, that you'd allow us to connect deeply with each other, Lord, and pray that you give us some great conversations, and that you begin to grow, not just to serve us here, um, but that you begin to grow a family, and um, that we would know each other, that we would delight in each other, that we would pursue and take initiative to know one another, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.